Welcome to the Why Did I Get Cancer podcast. I'm Deborah Herlax Enos, a small town girl turned TV nutritionist and healthy living expert. I design health programs for the average guy or gal, including those average guys named Metallica. On September 1st, 2020, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I asked every oncologist the same question, why did I get cancer? But none of my doctors had good answers for me. I wanted answers and that's why I started this podcast. I wanna help you to lower your cancer risk and provide self-care tips for those in the battle. I'm getting answers and I wanna share them with you. What did I take away from today's episode? To show people that they can get across the finish line and that they can take their pain and turn it into purpose. Oh, I'm so excited about today's podcast. I am going to be talking to Johnny Emmerman, and he was a real lifesaver. And the way he was a lifesaver is that Johnny got me a mentor. And my mentor, her name is Liza, she was about three years ahead of me on the cancer journey. She had the same type of cancer I had. She had really similar treatment. And she was somebody who just, I could call 24 hours a day and just vent. I could cry. I could talk to her about what I was going through. And the way this happened is Johnny started an organization called Emmerman Angels. It's his last name. And he connects people who have cancer with people of the same type and also for their caregivers. So Johnny, thank you so much for joining me today. It's great to see you. Great to meet you. Deborah, awesome to know you. And number one, we're just so glad you're healthy and you're strong and you're in a good place and you're over that hurdle. And we both as survivors know how hard and scary and difficult and long that journey can be. Um, and just so glad you're healthy and well. And that, that's our mission is survivors that are out there who we already know want to help people that are just brand new to the fight. How do we get them engaged? You know, how do we get them connected? There's, there's some Liza for everyone out there fighting cancer. And I'm so glad that you had her but she's the one that really deserves the credit because the these people are volunteers. You know, they're not they're not paid. There's no recognition publicly. They do this behind the scenes to help the next Deborah Herlax Enos get through their treatment because they're grateful and they want to make a difference and they want to know that something in their cancer journey is positive. And that story really is a gift when it's shared back with the next Deborah to help you navigate and guide you through the fight. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And she did. And I, uh, we still text and talk almost weekly and uh, we will be lifelong friends and we're bonded by cancer, but we're also bonded by hope. And one of the things that was so hard for me during cancer was feeling lonely. And can you speak a little bit to the loneliness issue of when you're in the battle? Absolutely. Loneliness that you felt. I felt the same thing, Deborah. Like it's scary and isolating and lonely in a lot of ways for most of us. I think going through cancer, I was 26, was diagnosed with advanced testicular cancer. Very foolish, but hadn't been to a doctor in five years prior to being diagnosed. And like we got to educate people to go in every year, get that blood test, get a checkup. If you find it earlier, people live. You just got to find it early. And I just was uneducated and I didn't go because I was 26 and I felt like I went to the gym and I was healthy and I played basketball and tennis and sports that I felt fine. So I didn't think I had to, but we really have to encourage people to go in and get checked. But once you get diagnosed, absolutely. The loneliness hits 
most of us right away. Uh, most of us automatically don't know a survivor like us, um, especially if it's a rare cancer. I think especially for younger people too. Um, and then if you're young with a rare cancer, they're really isolated and really, really alone because they're like, whoa, no one is out there who gets me. And that's why we really created Emmerman Angels. Um, you know, in the very beginning, I'm from Detroit area originally, and in the very beginning when um, went through treatments and cancer, I had the best mom, I had a lot of friends, I was very blessed. My brother's my best friend, they were all there to support me, but no one could look in my eye and say, oh, I understand because I've actually walked the same walk. And what happened was in the cancer center at the very end of treatment, a group of young survivors and I randomly met at the hospital and we all buddied up and we all wanted to give back and find purpose and meaning. And so we all agreed the broken part of the journey was the isolation. We didn't know survivors like us from the beginning. And that's when you're the most isolated and the most scared. So we started going back on Saturday afternoons, Tuesday after work as a group. And the doctors and nurses who we already knew started plugging us into rooms. And we would walk into rooms and talk to isolated cancer patients and just sort of give kind of like a football coach type pump up. Like, look, we did this. You can do this. You know, we had chemo, we, we got, we survived. You can get through this. I know it's hard. I know you're scared, but like we're on the other side, like show them what across the finish line looks like. And then over time we sort of grew and realized that we should be a, Emmerman Angel should be a one-to-one -one mentor program. That's very precise. That's someone with stage three breast cancer, who's a woman who's 45 in, you know, Missouri should be matched to somebody in, um, New Jersey, who is 50, who beat stage three breast cancer, same type with identical treatments and says, oh, I did this, you know, five years ago when I was your age, I know it all, you know, one-to-one. -one. And then that's sort of the apples to apples piece came in. And my mom in the early days met our survivor buddies and she's like, they're like angels, you know, why don't you call it Emmerman angels? Because they just want to give back. They don't want any recognition. They just simply give up their free time to help the next person because they're so grateful to be alive. Okay, so I'm actually um, feeling pretty emotional right now. Um, just one year, and this is my diagnosis anniversary month. And so it's really real to me right now um, how isolated I was. And um, you're right, people can support you and just be around you and hold your hand and hug you, but nobody can look you in the eye and say, hey, I've been there, you can do this. And sometimes it's just that, those few words, you can do this, dig deep, you can, I know you can, that people who haven't been through it just don't quite know how to say that. And even if they did, their words probably wouldn't have the same weight as somebody who actually has done it. 100% Deborah, and not that I want you to cry, but I am happy that you cry because I will tell you, we cry every day. I mean, this is emotional. It's life and death stuff. It's hard and it's deep and it's vulnerable and it's connecting at a very vulnerable level. It's really humanity in its best form about humans helping humans in the raw. So I, I think where you are, and I was exactly like you, there's a lot of tears in those first few years of survivorship um, because it is emotional and it is deep and it makes us all look at our lives and how long are we going to be on the planet and what are we doing with our days and our hours and life and and you know it just reevaluates everything but it's a healthy part of the process 
to let those tears come out. So my advice to you, which I say to anyone in your position, is don't try to hold it back. Just let it flow. That's part of the healing process. And I think that's part of just coping with the trauma. And I mean, there's a reason, right, that we cry and we feel emotional. And, and I think holding it back only sort of like pushes things down versus letting those emotions out. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So tell me a little bit about how you reach out to caregivers. It's one thing to be going through cancer treatment, but then can you speak to the people who are their support system, their parents, children, spouses, best friends, what can we do for caregivers? I think they're the unsung heroes of cancer treatment. Deborah, they are definitely that. They're the unsung heroes. You know, you have to support the whole family. We learned quickly with Emmerman Angels when a woman had breast cancer or colon cancer or a guy had brain cancer, and we matched him with a survivor. That was really important. But then what about the spouse? What about the children? Maybe it's a teenager with cancer. What about those parents? You, know, you have to help the family stay strong because if they're not strong, they also can't support the patient and the fight. So um, no, there's a lot of reasons that you support the whole team. So we definitely learned um, when people started calling us saying, you matched my spouse up with Mike and my spouse loves Mike and they have great conversations and I love that they're connected and it's helping him, but I am struggling because I we have kids and you know, my spouse is sick and can't really work that much. I have to get to work. The kids are struggling. What do we tell the kids? I'm overwhelmed. I just managing the cancer. I mean, obviously it's overwhelming and everybody, the caregivers take a big blow. So you match the spouse up with another spouse that says, oh yeah, like I went through that five years ago with my spouse. Oh, and you have two kids. We also have two kids. Oh, and you did, you know, this type of chemo regimen with your spouse. Guess what? Mine did the same thing. Like I'm very familiar with those side effects. There's someone out there for everyone who has gone through this from the same vantage point as you. And whether it's spouse to spouse or a child of someone with cancer to another child whose parent beat the cancer. I mean, whatever it is, there's always ways to find a caregiver to caregiver who understands and relates. One thing I noticed with cancer treatment is that my husband was such a great support, as was my mom. But I was, after my third surgery, I became cancer-free, as cancer-free as an oncologist is ever gonna tell you you are. Like 99.99, like they won't say 100%. But then about two months later, I mean, we were rejoicing and so grateful. And then two months later, my husband and I had just this huge argument and we actually, you know, went to counseling and our counselor said, have you ever saying to talking to my husband, Steve, have you ever dealt with her cancer? And he, we both said, no, we didn't even think that maybe he might have, you know, a little trauma, a little PTSD. So we did get counseling and I think it's been really helpful for our marriage. Yeah. That is awesome, Deborah. I'm so glad to hear it. And it's standard. I mean, it happens all the time where the whole spouse, the caregivers, if it's, of course, a parent of a child with cancer, there's going to be PTSD, there's going to be trauma. There's a study out there, interesting study out there that says 90% of people who go through cancer will say in their whole lifetime, it's the number one trauma of their life. Number one. Thank you for sharing that. That actually 
because I do still have moments, as you said, just let it out. You know, I'll hear a song or some pictures will pop up on my, you know, my, my news feed of a year ago and I will just start bawling. <laughs> and I keep thinking, oh my gosh, are you not over this yet, honey? And you know what? I'm probably never going to get over it. I just learned to manage it. And you mentioned a word earlier, um, isolated. I want to just pop back to that because I know that when I get isolated, my mind goes to some not so great places. Because again, when we're in isolation, our mind is usually not a positive thinking piece to us. 100% Deborah. you know, isolation can lead down a bad path, right? It can lead to depression, it can lead to uh, fear, it can really spiral downward. So um, the first step I think with isolation, which you had, which is great, a loving spouse and family and friends and support. And that's beautiful. Not everyone has that, but to have the support so at least you don't feel like you're physically alone. Um, but also, as we're talking about, I think with when it comes to cancer, um, it's there's like this, this barrier between people who are there to be like, I love you. I'm here to help you. If you want dinner, I can do that. If you need someone to cut your lawn, I can do that. If you need to drive your kids to a sporting event, I can do that. And that's all positive. But it's different when we have these connected conversations with someone who's like, oh, you're experiencing, you know, neuropathy in your fingers and it hurts. Like I did too. Like, you know, this is what I did. I dipped my fingers into warm water and all of a sudden it dilated the capillaries. The blood flow went up and in the neuropathy, the, the tingling got better or dealing with losing your hair, you know, generally for women, right? It's just such a tough thing. And, you know, it's tough to give somebody advice on, okay, you know, it's going to grow back unless you're like, but I've been bald too. Like, and I've lost my hair too. And I lost my eyelashes and my eyebrows and everything too. And yeah, it was weird. And yeah, it was uncomfortable. But um, here's little tips along the way. You, it, I, we believe that the best way to cure isolation, this is not just cancer, is connecting with someone who shares the experience or has shared it prior and been through it because they truly understand emotionally how hard it can be and they truly get um, what you're feeling from the inside. And it's just, it's hard for any family member who hasn't been through it to give you coaching on coping with losing your hair, coaching with being tired all the time. For me, the big thing where I felt really isolated and different was I couldn't go to the gym and I was too tired and I was too weak on chemo. And I'm a guy that like wants to work out seven days a week. Uh, I love it. It fuels me. And all of a sudden I couldn't do that anymore. And that was like a weird isolation. I'm like, I miss the gym. I miss my friends at the gym. I was afraid to go there on chemo because if somebody coughed on me and my immune system was suppressed and my whites were low, you know, and so it, for me, that was like an isolating thing. I was just staying home and I'm also like a big extrovert. So I need to fuel off people, but then I was afraid to be around people kind of like COVID I think has taught us some of those lessons, right? That we're all like, you know, slowly getting back, but you know, we miss human connection. There's also a piece, Deborah, which is interesting about isolation post-treatment, which isn't talked about a whole lot. But there are a lot of people who beat it, including me, and didn't know this at 28 or so when I finished treatment, but I felt a little off and uncomfortable right when I beat it because I thought, wait, I should be so happy. 
the second I beat it because I got my life back. But then I felt different and I felt a little socially awkward. And, you know, I'd been sort of removed for two years, like when my friends were going out in their 20s and going on dates with people and going to dinners. That can be an isolating feeling of how you're getting back into life and not feeling like yourself all the time and reconnecting with people who haven't been through our experience. That can be isolating that sometimes maybe people complain about things that you and I, Deborah, are like, wait. That doesn't even hit my radar as a problem. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. You're complaining about traffic or you're complaining about this. It's like, okay, I'm just grateful I, you know, I didn't have to do chemo. Like, like that is my level that I measure things by now. So um, can we talk a little bit about attitude? Because I just got to say, I mean, I've, you know, we don't have a relationship, you and I. We do now, which is which is amazing. And I'm so glad to know you, but your attitude is just joyful and full of gratitude and just so many things. How does attitude impact cancer treatment or any kind of health treatment that somebody might be going through? Well, thank you, Deborah. And likewise, you can feel good energy people even through Riverside, through Zoom. And you clearly are good energy and I'm not, not smiling the whole time here. So, you know, I think attitude is tough to keep it positive, especially with a trauma like cancer. But, you know, ultimately, I think if we work hard on it, it's a choice and we choose to look at things in a certain light. If we work on it again, I don't think it's natural for me or for anyone. Um, what keeps us really positive, to be honest, is stories like yours and people like you and the survivors like Liza. And we have you know, over almost 13,000 cancer survivors. And I don't know all of them, but I know a lot of them. And when they, some of them become or some of my best friends, some of our mentors, because we all you know, have the same love of giving back and sharing and helping people. But when you're around these grateful people and you're working together to make a difference for the newbies that are just starting their cancer journey, and they're so positive and they're so sincere and genuine and good-hearted, I will tell you that is one of the key reasons in my life that I feel grateful and I feel positive. And so when you're around these people a lot in our team, I talked to the team this morning, we have 11 full-time all based in Chicago, even though I'm in New York now, but we talk every day. And the team is so inspired and passionate. And and it keeps us positive as well because people just like you, Deborah, like they're very quick to tell us when their mentor really helps them. That's your fuel. Yeah, I get it. And um, one of the interesting things about cancer that I didn't expect talking about attitude is that it really made me very aware that people really are like elevators. They can bring you up and they can bring you down. And cancer has really made me a no BS person anymore where I might have, you know, sung the song or did the dance or whatever, people pleasing. I don't do that anymore. I choose who's in my circle. My circle lifts me up. I lift them up. And I think cancer has just made it to the point where I don't want to waste any time. And I'm not going to waste any time being down in the basement. I want to be in the penthouse. That's where my attitude wants to be. And that's where my attitude is. I love that. And it's so true. And you, you, I can feel it from you. And, you know, you, you've gotten there probably much quicker than most people one year out. Um, 
but you know it ultimately is a choice and the people you surround yourself with is a choice and you know i will tell you you probably know this but the more people like liza you talk to and the more grateful survivors who have been through it who are really you know enlightened and inspired and happy and want to be happy and have a positive attitude you learn a lot of things like for example like I've changed my diet to be much healthier because I picked that up from other survivors who are very educated and they're like, wait, diet really matters. And the researchers you know will say the same thing. Um, you know, I even stopped drinking for chemo, never picked it up again because I'm like, if that doesn't add value to my life or nutrition, I'm like, I don't, I don't need it. I want just things that make me feel good and are healthy. Um, I meditate every single day. I do gratitude prayer every day. But a lot of these things I picked up from being around the community of other survivors. And so I think you learn other tips when you're around selfless people who really care and do good and inspire and motivate others and mentor others, people like Liza. And, you know, it helps us keep our attitude strong and we learn, we learn ways like meditation and gratitude prayer every day to keep our attitudes in the right place because that's really all we have, right, is the present moment and we want it to be good. I feel just like you. I don't have time to have a bad day. Occasionally, I'll have a bad hour. Like sometimes, I'll, you know, I get caught up. I'm human. And I'll get upset over something that's minutia. I am guilty of that. But I'm like, I need to flip it around in an hour. I can't afford more than an hour. I need to have next hour has got to be better. I got to figure out how to meditate or do something or go to the gym and work it out. But like, I got to flip my attitude so it's positive because we only have so many minutes you know, left in life. Yeah. And you have a mission and I have a mission and words have power. And so maybe, you know, a year ago, I'd be having a bad day and I just say, maybe it's 10 o'clock in the morning. Well, it's just a bad day. And I, now I say, no, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to declare that over myself at 10 o'clock in the morning. I still have 10 hours to go. It's just a bad moment and I'm going to have an awesome rest of my day. So I will just almost prophesy over myself because I don't want to waste any time. Cancer, I think, makes you just realize life is short and you just got to grab it and go for it. 100%. That is the perfect attitude. It's a moment that you're having a bad moment, but you are not a down person. It's not even a down day. You can't own that. You shouldn't label yourself with that. I totally agree. It's like you have a moment and then we got to flip it around. And, you know, if you talk to these like meditation and uh, meditation experts and coaches, they'll all teach you that like that is human. Like no one is 100% positive attitude every day. But the key is learning when to meditate or when to flip the mind around when you feel the bad attitude coming or something in your life you can't control is negative and happens to you, like losing a family member or someone's in a car accident you care about. I mean, that's just life. It's going to happen, sadly. But it's how we deal with it and how we're able to flip around and find the good and keep a positive attitude. That's the real trick. Not easy, but important. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I tell you, if you can nail that down, your life is made. I mean, honestly, you know what? You're going to crush it in every aspect of your life you know, most aspects of your life, if you can learn to manage your attitude and your outlook. 100%. It's really the only thing we have control over. 
It's the only thing at the end of the day. I realized, you know, I, you know how it is. You go to doctor appointments and they just all seem to be doom and gloom. And I've never met, you know, a, a happy oncologist in my, my treatment. And I would leave and I would just think, oh my gosh, you know, could the news get any worse? But there was this space in between hearing the news and my reaction that I could control. But it was 100% up to me to control it. So I can only control what's in my yard and I could, you know, have a breakdown and not control anything, or I could just pause, take a, take a deep breath, you know, realize God's got it and I can't control anything. I can, but I can control my attitude. Yes, that is exactly right. Faith is a big piece, I think, of this and getting through cancer and knowing that, um, that yes, you can control the attitude and surrounding yourself with people that are positive. That's what we all need. We lift each other. And when your friend group and your family is overall positive, it's a lot easier to look at the right side and find something good. Because if you want to find the first example is what we're talking about right here with Liza taking her cancer treatment, that could be to some people a horrible thing, very negative, very scary, painful. And she feels amazing, like I do as a survivor, that we have a gift. You know, that's the positive side. It's all about how you frame it. Do you want to look at it as a horrible experience or it's a knowledge that's a gift that the next Deborah who needs us, we have it. All we have to do is share it. And there's only so few people who have that exact story. So she's a very rare person who has a story that's very similar to yours and able to give that gift to the right person to make a difference. All of a sudden, she's sort of manipulated the experience and said, wow, there's meaning and purpose. There's actually more good here than bad. And it's that, that to me is the definition of just a good attitude. Like Liza joining Immerman Angels to be your mentor, to be your friend, to care about you, to want to see you cross that line and have your husband, have his wife, you know, live a long life together. I mean, that's why Liza does what she does. And that's, to me, that's the epitome of, of taking something that easily could be a negative and a bad attitude thing and turning it into something positive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And truly I have that, I have that image now of, you know, running a 5k or a 10k and your best friend or your spouse or your mom or your kids are at the finish line and they're cheering you on. And that truly has been my experience with Emmerman Angels. I'm so grateful that at 26, you went through what you went through and you truly turned something evil into something so good. And you've helped tens of thousands of people. And I do want to ask you just a final question of, of, um, that I often will ask. Um, my cry throughout cancer was, why did I get cancer? Because again, I'm a health coach. I'm a certified nutritionist. I run half marathons. Do you have any thoughts as to, you know, why did you get cancer at 26? Why? Yes. You know, Deborah, I truly believe that, that there was a purpose and a reason I would never change it. And I know you get that, but a lot of people who've never had cancer might not understand that and that's okay, but we get it. We've been through it. Not that it was easy and not that it wasn't scary because it was hard and it was scary. And I think, you know, people like us are the exact same with cancer. You know, it is our purpose. It's one of the key reasons we're still here. And we have the knowledge to make the system better and a passion to do it. 
and and uh, and uh, and a passion to also work together, which is the best part. The teamwork. You know, it's like Emmanuel's is like the epitome of a team, right? We're strong because we're all in this together as a network. Because we don't know is someone going to call us in Spain with a rare stomach cancer that there's 15 in the world every year? Like we're going to have to find someone on the planet who's like them who really walked that walk. You know, and so, but that's the power of the network, right? One survivor does so little, but when we're all in the same network together, that's when we really move a mountain. And that's when we help everyone. And if everybody's paired one to one, we can do it. But I think it's all, it starts with thinking there was a reason at 26, I got it. Or Deborah, you, I think about two years ago, it sounds like you were diagnosed. You know, there's a reason that we got it. There's a reason that we're here and we're doing everything we can in our power to make the, the cancer system better and the experience better for those who are sick today. Oh gosh, Johnny, thank you. I'm so grateful. I'm, it sounds weird, but I'm so grateful you got cancer at 26 and decided to turn your pain into purpose. I and it's just a beautiful thing. I can't thank you enough. I know there are tens of thousands of us who have been in your network, Emmerman Angels, and we maybe wouldn't have made it or certainly wouldn't have made it with, with such a good attitude without your work and without your staff and all of your angels. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. This was just such an honor to talk to you. So thank you so much. Deborah, likewise. I love wearing my wireless headphones. They're so convenient, but I am concerned about wearing them for too long. There are native EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies, that come from the sun or the earth, and then there are non-native, which come from cell phones, earbuds, electric blankets, just to name a few. I don't know about you, but I don't want high levels of EMFs around my body and certainly not my head. A few months ago, I saw an ad pop up on social media about a product called WaveBlock. This company created an anti-radiation sticker that deflects the majority of EMFs that are emitted by my earbuds. I was so intrigued that I actually called the owner of the company. We had a great conversation and I asked him some tough questions about his product. I walked away won over by his enthusiasm and his story of why. When I asked him why he created this product, his answer was to protect his kids that were surrounded by EMFs all day long. I feel like I can now wear my WaveBlock protected earbuds all day since 95% of the EMFs are deflected. In today's show notes, I have a coupon for 20% off of WaveBlock. Use the code ENOS20 when you purchase your WaveBlock products. Thank you for joining me today on the Why Did I Get Cancer podcast. I've got my shopping guide for all of my cancer self-care items in the show notes, along with information about today's guest and our show sponsors. And don't forget to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. Keep in mind, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a gal that got diagnosed with cancer and wanted answers. If you need medical advice, please be sure to consult with a medical professional. And thank you for listening.